God said, Pigs are unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales. It is detestable to you. Leviticus 19 says, You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Numbers 15 says, Make tassels on the corners of your garments and put a cord of blue on each tassel. Leviticus 19 again says, You shall not mar the edges of your beard. Well, this morning perhaps we've already acted contrary to these verses. Maybe this morning you shaved. Or you're wearing clothes made of different fabrics. I don't see many tassels out there today. And maybe you ate bacon or sausage for breakfast or you're planning on shrimp or crab for lunch. Believers today usually don't think twice about living inconsistently with the Old Testament law. And why not? After all, the Old Testament law is a part of our Bible, and the Bible is God's Word. Do we not believe that God's Word is authoritative for our lives? How should Christians on this side of the cross think about the authority of the Old Testament law? Should we obey its commands? And before you quickly answer no, remember the testimony of the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 119 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Is that true? That every rule of the Old Testament endures forever? Should Christians today try to live in line with the commands of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Well, some people believe so. They're called theonomists. And theonomists are actually quite influential in a lot of evangelical and political circles today, especially in Texas. And one of the most famous theonomists, Greg Bonson, wrote, quote, All men are held responsible by God to obey all of his law in every area of their lives. Theonomists believe not only that we should personally obey the Old Testament law, but that we should strive to see our country become a theocracy which rejects our Constitution and enacts the Old Testament as our civil law. That's one answer people have come up with to the question of the present force of the Old Testament law. Here's another approach. The 2018 megachurch pastor Andy Stanley gave a sermon in which he argued that, quote, Christians should unhitch from the worldview and value system of the Jewish scriptures. The Ten Commandments, he said, have no authority over you, none to be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Now, that is a radically different view than theonomy, right? The theonomists say, obey the Old Testament. Andy Stanley says, away with the Old Testament. And in between these two positions are various other positions which have been held by Christians for the last 2,000 years. The meaning and authority of the Old Testament law has been a subject of intense debate since the very earliest days of Christianity. It was this very question that caused the first doctrinal controversy in church history, which led to the writing of the book of Galatians and the first church council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. This is an ancient controversy and it remains a modern controversy. How should we understand the authority and force of the Old Testament law for the people of God today? And that is what we will consider this morning as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And today we're going to see that Jesus answers this question for us in verses 17 through 20. Now, over the last few sermons in this book, we've seen that Jesus has introduced the Sermon on the Mount by pronouncing blessings on believers and by giving believers some responsibilities to maintain a distinctive public testimony for him. But in today's passage, Jesus begins the main body, the central section of 
his sermon. As in verse 17, Jesus speaks about the law and the prophets, a shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament. This central section of the sermon also ends with Jesus speaking about the law and the prophets over in chapter 7, verse 12, where Jesus says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, here we find a rhetorical structure called an inclusion. We saw an inclusion back at the beginning of chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, which were a list of blessings that began and ended in the same way, repeating the phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we said that this repetition means that we should read all of the Beatitudes in light of this repeated phrase. So all of the Beatitudes were describing those who presently have a claim on the kingdom of heaven, that is, believers. Well, here we find another inclusion, beginning and ending with the law and the prophets. And that tells us to read everything from chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 7, verse 12, in light of this repeated phrase, the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. In this section, Jesus is going to speak about important matters like how believers should think and live and how we should regard God and how we should treat others. Subjects that are addressed by the Old Testament. And as Jesus talks about these matters, sometimes he is going to uphold and, in fact, extend what the Old Testament says. Sometimes he's going to intensify what the Old Testament says. Sometimes he's going to say something that seems surprisingly different than what the Old Testament seems to say. Sometimes he's going to lay down new ideas not previously found in the Old Testament. But in each case, what Jesus is really doing is, she, is he is showing us where the real intention of God was behind the law, where, where the purposes of God really point beyond the letter of the old law. And in today's passage, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus is going to lay down the critical principle that helps us understand the relationship between his disciples and the Old Testament law. And that principle is that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law and its authoritative interpreter. Jesus stands as the conclusion of the Old Covenant and the foundation of the New Covenant. And as the bridge between the old era and the new era, it is Jesus who has the right to tell his people what parts of the old covenant endure into the church age and which stand fully concluded. And this morning we're going to talk about what all this means and why it matters to us. And what I'd like us to do this morning is begin by briefly examining four biblical truths about the Old Testament law. And then we're going to look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and we're going to see three principles that teach us how believers on this side of the cross should understand the force of the application of the Old Testament law today. But let's start today by examining four biblical truths about the Old Testament law. First, the law was not imposed from the very beginning of history. Think back to the beginning of the Bible. God created, humanity falls, God judges with the flood, society begins again and rebels at Babel, and God judges again by fragmenting human society into many nations. But God did not just condemn humanity without having a kind redemptive plan. And God began to execute his redemptive plan by choosing one man through whom he would make a holy nation, and that man was Abram, or Abraham we would know him today as. Genesis 12 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God then led Abram to the land of Canaan, 
Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God promised that Abraham would found a great nation, which would occupy the land of Canaan, and that Abraham would become a blessing and a conduit of God's blessing to all of the other nations who had been scattered across the earth because of God's judgment at Babel. Now, why did God give Abraham these blessings? If you ask a Pharisee in the first century, this is what he would tell you. God blessed Abraham because Abraham obeyed the Old Testament law. And we know that's what a first century Pharisee would say, because we have writings that come from the early Pharisees, um, who happen to be the students of the first century Pharisees, and they make that very claim. But notice that when God made this promise to Abraham, the Old Testament law had not yet been given. The Apostle Paul would later make this very point in Galatians 3.17, when he says the law came 430 years after this incident. Paul says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. First century Judaism was so obsessed with the law that they had placed the law in God's shoes. They said the law was the reason that Abraham was blessed. But the law wasn't even around yet. They had forgotten that Abraham was blessed because of a promise that came from God, which was because of God's grace. And God indeed repeated this gracious promise to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. Again, still centuries before the law was given. Israel and his family went to Egypt. They multiplied into a nation, and God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and the Exodus. And they began to cross the wilderness, and still the law had not yet been given. Friends, the law was not from the very beginning. The second truth we need to know is that the Old Testament law was given as part of the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. As Israel went across the wilderness, we read that they came to Mount Sinai, where God manifested his presence. And Moses went up the mountain, and there God said in Exodus 19.3, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. God here reveals his intended purpose for Israel. They are to be a holy nation that reflects God's moral perfection, that is set apart unto the Lord, that is different from all the other nations. They are to be a kingdom of priests, characterized by worship in the very presence of God. They are to be God's unique treasured possession among humanity. But, God says, this is conditioned upon Israel obeying God's voice and keeping his covenant. This is very different than the blessing God gave Abraham. God's blessing to Abraham was basically an unconditional promise. Other than God telling Abraham to go, no other conditions were attached to the blessing. But Israel is told they will enjoy God's blessing only so far as they kept his law. And as they obey, God says he will allow Israel to dwell in the promised land of Canaan. Leviticus 20 says, You shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. And there in the promised land, as Israel obeyed God's law, they would enjoy fabulous material prosperity. Deuteronomy 28, God says, If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and in the field, the fruit of your womb and your ground, your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and go out. But if Israel failed to keep God's law, Israel would suffer grievous material curses. 
Again, Deuteronomy 28 says, In that case, cursed shall you be in the city, in the field, in your basket, and your kneading bowl, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Cursed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. And if Israel persisted in sin, ultimately they would be expelled from the promised land. Leviticus 20.22 says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Now what I want you to see here is that it is within this context of God making an agreement with Israel related to their occupation and blessing of the promised land that God gave the Old Testament law. The law was not given to any other nation or people or for any other purpose. The law was not given to or for the Gentiles. In fact, the law will become a sticking point in Jewish-Gentile relations. It will become what the Apostle Paul calls in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles came to hate Jews because of the oddity of the law. And Jews came to hate Gentiles because the Gentiles did not observe their law. But ironically enough, Israel wound up not observing the law either. They totally failed to keep their end of this covenant. And that leads us to the third truth that we need to know about the law, which is that the Old Testament anticipated a time in which the law would no longer be in effect. God gave Israel the law covenant at Sinai, but centuries later, God would say through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. This is the covenant that I will make with Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God says he's going to make a new covenant with Israel. Now, centuries later, the book of Hebrews made this observation, Hebrews 8, 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The fact that God says he's going to make a new covenant presupposes the inadequacy and temporariness of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. In the same way, the Mosaic covenant created a priesthood that ran through the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. But in Psalm 110, God declares that a new priest will one day come, one who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priest who is not part of the tribe of Levi or the family of Aaron, a priest of a different sort of priesthood, who is like Melchizedek, a figure from Genesis, who was a priest and a king. Under the law of Moses, no one could be both priest and king because priests and kings came from different tribes. But a priest is coming, Psalm 110 says, who will also be a king. Again, Hebrews says, Hebrews 7.11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. All right. We can see then that the Old Testament itself uses language which implies that the Mosaic covenant is inadequate and temporary. The prophets anticipated a new covenant. The Psalms anticipated a new priesthood, which presupposed a change in the law itself. Again, the book of Hebrews says in 8.13, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the Mosaic covenant does not last forever. But why would God give Israel the Mosaic Covenant as a temporary measure? Well, the New Testament tells us in Galatians 3.24. It says the law was our guardian until Christ came. 
God gave Israel the law as a temporary guardian. As Galatians 4 puts it, like a manager who runs an estate for a child who's inherited a fortune, but he's too young to inherit. He still has to wait until he comes of age. And that's how the law was. It was a guide to stand over Israel from the time of Sinai until the coming of Christ. But as we come to the New Testament, Christ now appears. And what does he do? Luke twenty two twenty. Jesus says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus begins the new covenant with his death. And as the new covenant comes into force, what do we find said of Jesus? Hebrews 9 says, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ, the promised king, has become the promised kingly high priest, and he has presented to God the ultimate sacrifice, his own blood, to forgive the sin not only of Israel, but of all who believe. And by so doing, the old covenant has become obsolete. Paul put it like this in Ephesians 2.14. Christ is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul now says that by Jesus' death on the cross, Christ has torn down that which separated Gentiles and Jews. The law of commandments and ordinances has been abolished because Christ's death ends the old covenant and inaugurates the new. And yet, although we've just seen the Old Testament scriptures anticipated the day that that uh, the Old Covenant would sometime become obsolete. We also saw a few minutes ago that other parts of the Old Testament insist that the Word of God stands forever and that every one of God's righteous rules endures forever. How can this be reconciled? Well, one way people have tried to reconcile this is by claiming that in Christ, only some parts of the law have been made obsolete while other parts of the law remain in force. This is an old interpretation which dates back to Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. Aquinas argued that the law had three parts. A civil law, which involved how Israel operated as a nation. A ceremonial law, which regulated Israel's temple worship. And a moral law, which regulated how people should live. And Aquinas and many interpreters who have followed him said that Christ's death abolished the civil law and the ceremonial law, but the moral law, they say, remains intact. It's a clever solution. There's just one problem. The Bible never tells us that we should consider the law as being divisible into these three parts or into any parts. And this is the fourth truth that we need to know about the law today. The law is an indivisible unit. The New Testament insists on this quite strongly. Galatians 3.10 says, It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The law is an all or nothing proposition. It cannot be broken into parts, some of which remain in force while others fall away. So the law is an indivisible structure, part of the Mosaic Covenant, not given at creation, but given at Sinai with apparently temporary force. Although some parts of the Old Testament seem to insist that the law continues forever. Now, with this background, I think we're ready to take on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about the ongoing force of the Old Testament law. So we're going to spend the rest of our time now in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. I want us to see three principles that Jesus here gives us related to the law. 
And the first principle is that the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, wait, wait a minute. Did we not just read Paul explicitly say in Ephesians 2.15 that at the cross, Jesus has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? But here Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law. Is there a terrible contradiction here? What is going on? We might wonder, well, maybe this inconsistency is because of a translational difficulty. And indeed, the Greek verb translated abolish in Ephesians 2 is different than the Greek verb translated abolish in Matthew 5. But while these are different verbs, they basically mean the same thing. That doesn't seem to be the solution to this conundrum. So how do we understand this tension? Well, let's keep reading and let's let Jesus explain it. Matthew 5, 17, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we're going to talk about this word fulfill in just a second. But let's keep reading. Verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus here weighs in on the question of the duration of the law by plainly telling us how long the law will endure by using two phrases. The first is, until heaven and earth pass away. And the second is, until all is accomplished. Now this second phrase, until all is accomplished, seems a bit mysterious at first, but logically we can figure out what it means pretty quickly. Because if the law has to stand until heaven and earth pass away, and the law has to stand until all is accomplished, that means that the time that all is accomplished is the time that heaven and earth pass away. And so what Jesus is saying here is the law will endure until the end of history as we know it, until all of God's purposes for this age come to fruition. But how much of the law will endure? Well, Jesus says all of it. He says not an iota, not a dot will pass away. The iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Now, you might say, well, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and that's true. And in Aramaic and Hebrew, the smallest letter is the yod. And the yod would have been rendered in Greek as an iota. So what Jesus is saying is, down to the smallest possible letter, the law will not pass away. But what is this dot that Jesus talks about? This seems to be a reference to an ornamental pen stroke, which was used in writing Hebrew letters. So Jesus says, even down to the smallest pen stroke, the law will not pass away until the end of the age. All of the law stands and remains together until the end. Now, this is another reason that we must reject the interpretation that the law is made up of three parts, two of which have ended and one of which endures. Because Jesus said the whole law, down to its smallest pen stroke, endures until the end. But if that is true, how can Paul say that Jesus has abolished the Mosaic law? How can Christians today live their lives without trying to obey the Mosaic law? How can we dare to eat bacon and wear clothes without tassels and take a long walk on a Friday evening? Well, the answer comes down to one word which we find in verse 17, fulfill. Jesus has fulfilled the law. What does this mean? Well, some people try to claim that fulfill means affirm. They say Jesus reaffirmed the law he confirmed it as authoritative and binding. There's three problems with this. Number one, that's not what this verb means. Number two, that would mean that Paul has directly contradicted Jesus. And number three, we find elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus did declare some parts of the law to be obsolete. In Mark chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? 
And then Mark comments, thus he declared all foods clean. Right there, Jesus declared the dietary laws obsolete. He's not confirming. He's not establishing the dietary law. He's ending it. So the word fulfill here cannot mean affirming or establishing the law. Well, other people claim this verb fulfill means obey. So they say Jesus obeyed the law. And that's absolutely true that Jesus completely obeyed the law. Jesus is sinlessly perfect. 2 Corinthians 5 sees Paul calling Jesus him who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2 says he committed no sin. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And as a Jewish man in the first century, Jesus' sinlessness necessarily means that Jesus kept the law in every respect. So yes, Jesus obeyed the law. And yet, I don't think that's what this word fulfill means. Why not? Because this word fulfill is used many times in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've seen what it means many times already in this book. In chapter 1, we learned that Jesus was born of a virgin to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7 that a virgin will conceive. In chapter 2, we learned of Jesus' family moving to Egypt and Herod massacring the boys of Bethlehem and Jesus' family moving to Nazareth. And we're told all of that fulfill various prophetic expectations of the Scripture. In chapter 4, we learned that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee and that this fulfilled Isaiah 9. In chapter 8, in chapter 12, we'll see Jesus again is doing things that Matthew says fulfill various sections of Isaiah. And this word fulfill is used in the same way again and again and again throughout this book of Matthew. What we see is this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises and expectations of the Old Testament. The Old Testament anticipates Jesus, and Jesus fulfills the Old Testament's expectations. And so when Jesus says he has come to fulfill the prophets, we understand that. Because there are many prophecies that foretold the coming of Jesus. When and where and how he would be born, what he would do, how he would die and rise again. And Jesus fulfilled all those things. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies about the Messiah's first coming. But how can Jesus be the fulfillment of the law? Prophecies can be fulfilled, right? Because a prophet says this is going to happen, and then later it does. And we say, okay, that prophecy was fulfilled. But how can a law be fulfilled? Well, later in this book, Jesus is going to say in Matthew eleven thirteen, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist. It's a very interesting statement. Obviously, the prophets prophesied, but Jesus says the Old Testament law was also prophetic. And how was the law prophetic? Well, I think there are three ways in which this is true. First, the law in various points contains explicit prophecies. So Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It is to him you shall listen. That's a prophecy. God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses, a great figure who declares God's word, who has a, a, an immense stature within Israel. A great prophet is coming. And you say, well, who is this great prophet? It's the Messiah. This prophecy and others like it in the law are fulfilled in Jesus. Second, the law contains what is called typology. Typology is where we find something in the Old Testament which is a model that anticipates and predicts a greater truth that is revealed in the New Testament. And we find typology throughout the law. In the law, we find rules for various animal sacrifices that the Israelites had to perform. But Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 10 says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Old Testament sacrifices anticipated and predicted the ultimate greater sacrifice of Christ. We also find that the law required Israel to observe certain holidays. Colossians 2 says there are festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
These holidays, in different ways, point to truths about Christ and what he would accomplish. The Old Testament law also speaks about how Israel would one day have a king and how he should rule, anticipating that one day the final king, the Messiah, would come, who Isaiah 9 says will rule in perfect righteousness. These types all point forward to Jesus. But third, the law itself, including its moral commands, is itself a type. It is itself prophetic. Because not only did the law regulate the conduct of ancient Israelites, but by its demands, the law winds up describing the perfect life that would be lived by the Messiah, the life that Jesus actually lived. And so the law prophesied the coming of the Messiah every bit as much as the prophets did. And now Jesus says he is the fulfillment, not just of the prophets, but also of the law. Now think about this. Isaiah 7.14 says, A virgin shall conceive. It came true. Should we expect that that prophecy will come true again? No, because it stands fulfilled. What it expected and anticipated has come to pass. So it has no continuing force as a prediction. Now, does that mean that Isaiah 7.14 has been overthrown or stricken out of the Bible? No. It remains a part of God's word. It continues as a testimony of God's faithfulness to do what he says he would do. In the same way, the law now stands fulfilled. It is fulfilled because Christ has come. Christ has fulfilled the explicit prophecies and the typology and even the moral life required by the law. The law and the prophets and the Old Testament and the Old Covenant entirely comprehensively pointed forward to Jesus. And now Jesus has come. And so Jesus can say, I fulfill all of that. And so all of that has no continuing force beyond as a record and testimony about Jesus. That does not mean that it has been overthrown or destroyed. Jesus has not struck the Old Testament out of the Bible. No, the law's commands indeed endure forever. Not as a binding word of authority about how God's people should live, but as a witness of the holiness and faithfulness of God. That God sent his son just like he said he would, and that Jesus perfectly lived the law out. Jesus is the one to whom the law points. Paul put it like this in Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the Greek word translated end can mean two things. It can mean the culmination and it can mean the conclusion. And that's what Jesus is to the law. The law points to Jesus. He is its culmination, its fulfillment, and he is the conclusion of the legal force of the law for all who believe for Jews who previously had been bound to the Old Covenant, and for Gentiles who previously had not been party to the Old Covenant. But in Jesus, Jewish and Gentile believers are brought together under the New Covenant, free from the strictures of the Mosaic Law. Now, sometimes people hear this and they get worried. Does this idea that the law stands fulfilled, that its legal force is now abolished, mean that believers can live however they want. No. The old law stands fulfilled, but that doesn't mean that all bets are off now on how believers must live. Because not only is Jesus the culmination of the old covenant, Jesus is also the foundation of the new covenant. And as the one who stands between these two covenants, Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of the ethical demands of God. And Matthew shows us this in a fascinating way. We've talked about typology. And earlier in this book, we saw some really interesting typology. In chapter 2, we read that God says, Out of Egypt I called my son, which was originally a line in Hosea about Israel. But Matthew applies this to Jesus. And we saw how Jesus' life indeed reflected the history of ancient Israel. Like Israel, Jesus came up out of Egypt. Like Israel, Jesus went through a baptism. 1 Corinthians 10 says Israel was baptized by walking through the Red Sea, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. 
Like Israel, Jesus went into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And now, like Israel, Jesus comes to a mountain. Israel came to Sinai to receive the law. And here in chapter 5, we find Jesus on a mountain, like Moses. In fact, Matthew's already made some important parallels between Moses and Jesus in this book. When Moses was a baby, the Egyptians wanted to kill him. When Jesus was a baby, Herod wanted to kill him. In chapter 3, John the Baptist spoke of Christ, quoting from Isaiah 40, a passage that recalls the ancient Exodus and which anticipates a future Exodus, an Exodus that Jesus will bring about. And now, just as Moses went up on the mountain to proclaim God's word to Israel, how does Matthew 5 begin? Jesus went up on the mountain. And now Jesus begins to talk about where the old law really points and what it really means. And he declares a new ethical demand for his followers. See, friends, Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Jesus is the one who has the right to authoritatively declare God's demands to God's people. Jesus culminates the old law, Jesus begins the new covenant, and Jesus imposes ethical standards for his disciples, for you and me if we're believers. And we're going to see that in the rest of chapter 5. As Jesus imposes ethical standards that are in some way related to the old covenant. He takes various commands from the old covenant, he reinterprets them, and he issues new ethical demands that are binding on believers today. And friends, this is very important. This is where Andy Stanley's wrong when he says we've got to get rid of the Old Testament. Because much of the New Testament's ethical instruction for believers on this side of the cross is grounded in some way in the Old Testament. Sometimes we find commands in the New Testament that are basically identical to the commands of the Old Testament. So in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Here is Paul, who told us earlier in Ephesians that the law stands abolished. And now he's quoting from the Ten Commandments as he gives Christians a command. You say, well, if the law is abolished, why is Paul quoting it? Well, here's another example. James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. James says to believers, here's something for you to obey. And he quotes from Leviticus 19.18. If the law is abolished, why is James pointing believers to this command? Well, I think we get a clue when James calls this the royal law. Yes, these commands originally came from the Old Testament. But who else pointed believers to this law? Jesus, our king, right? And Jesus has determined that some of the regulations of the Old Testament continue to be binding upon his new covenant people. He takes those commands from the old covenant and he pulls them into the new covenant era. Sometimes, though, we find commands in the New Testament that are intensifications of the commands found in the Old Testament, where Jesus is actually more demanding than the old law was. The law regulated outward conduct we're going to see here in chapter 5, Jesus is going to talk about our inner lives. He's going to say God's standard of righteousness is not just that we don't kill people or commit adultery. He's going to say we should refrain from inner attitudes of sinful anger and lust. And sometimes we're going to see Jesus or the apostles lay down entirely new commands that seem different or in some way contrary to the commands of the Old Testament. This doesn't mean that the old law was in error. Only it means that things are different under the new covenant than they were under the old. And we're going to see some examples of this later in chapter 5. But what I want you to see is that it is Jesus who decides what ethical demands carry over from the Old Testament to the new and in what form. But what about the value of the old commandments in themselves? What about, say, the Ten Commandments? Well, nine of those commands are repeated in the New Testament, and so believers should obey them today. Only the Sabbath command stands abrogated. We don't worship on Saturday. We're not liable to a death penalty for working on a Friday night or Saturday morning. 
But even though the Sabbath command is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament, that doesn't mean that somehow that ancient law was meaningless or wrong. The ancient laws that are not repeated in the New Testament still have value to us in two ways. First, because there are often principles in the ancient law or the records of the ancient Israelites obeying or disobeying the law that have conceptual parallels in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says these things took place as examples for us. So think about this. The dietary law is no longer binding. We don't just have to eat kosher food. But the ancient dietary law speaks about the truth that God means for his people to be holy and distinctive in this world. And friends, that's still true in the church age. See, the Old Testament laws and stories contain principles which have continuity with the New Testament even if the way those principles are lived out under the New Covenant looks different than it did under the Old Covenant. Second, sometimes structures in the ancient law worked as types anticipating theological realities found in the New Testament. So the Sabbath command is not repeated in the New Testament, although I think we can find the idea in the New Testament that we should rest and spend time with our family. But more than all that, the Sabbath points to a typological reality. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. How? Not just by taking part of the weekend off, but because those who trust in Christ will enjoy an eternal rest of worship and glory and joy. That part of the old law anticipates a reality which is more fully revealed in the new. And so the Old Testament law, even if it is not presently legally binding, still has great value to us as a repository of examples and principles that we find in the New Testament and of concepts that are connected to New Testament theological realities. But I also want you to see that believers are still to be people of obedience. The rules that we are to obey are not exactly the same rules that ancient Israel obeyed. Israel obeyed the old law as part of the old covenant to maintain and be blessed in their land. But the church has no land. We are under a new covenant. And we obey the commands of Jesus, our Lord, and his apostles who speak authoritatively on Jesus' behalf. Paul shows us this in 1 Thessalonians 4.2. He says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. There are still commands for believers issued on the personal authority of Jesus, and believing friends, we are to obey them. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So the truth that the law stands fulfilled is not an excuse for licentiousness. God's people are still to be obedient. But now we are obedient to the ethical demands related to the new covenant. And so from all of this, I hope that you can see that the Old Testament remains a vital part of God's word, even though it stands fulfilled in Christ. All right, let's move on now to the second principle we find in these verses, which is the believer's response to the truth of the fulfilled law is directly related to our rewards in the coming kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a difficult verse, but let me tell you what I think this means. Notice that this verse is about these commandments. Which commandments? Well, verse 19 begins with the word, Therefore which points to what came before it, the law and the prophets. Additionally, every other time that the word these appears in Matthew, it refers to what came before it. So again, we would say this is talking about the law and the prophets. But verses 17 and 18 just told us that the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. So I think we've got to understand this phrase, these commandments in light of that the Old Testament as it is interpreted by Jesus, including the commands that issue forth from Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament. And I think that's the idea. 
So we have here basically the commands of God as mediated and interpreted by Jesus. Now, notice that Jesus tells us that these commands are not all of equal importance. He speaks of some of the commands as being lesser and others as being greater. There's an idea today that all of Jesus' commands are equal in weight and that all sin is likewise equal. But that's not biblical. There are greater and lesser commands. And there are greater and lesser consequences for breaking those commands. Now make no mistake. The violation of any of Jesus' commands merits eternal punishment. But we're going to learn in chapter 11 that not everyone's experience of eternal punishment is the same. Every experience in hell is bad, but some people in hell have it worse than others. So there are greater and lesser commands, greater and lesser punishments. And the third thing we see in this verse is that there are greater and lesser rewards. There are gradations of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone who is saved does not have the same ranking in God's estimation. And that's an important thing for us to know, right? If we belong to Jesus, we want to enjoy the rewards that come with his highest approval. That is a biblical thing to want to pursue eternal rewards. We should pursue the most rewards that we can get from God. And at the same time, we also need to know that believers can lose rewards. 1 Corinthians 3 warns that in the end, some believers will find that their labors do not withstand Jesus' scrutiny. And they will suffer the loss of rewards though they will be saved, but only as through fire. Some people are going to find themselves in the kingdom only barely, saved but without reward. And it will still be glory for them, but it won't be what it could have been. And so Jesus here says, of those who are saved, those who will be in the kingdom when it comes in its fullness, some of them will be among the least. And we don't want that to be us, right? And others will be among the greatest. And that's where we want to be. And Jesus tells us that one of the determining factors that decides our position in the kingdom is this. What is our attitude towards the law and the prophets as interpreted by Jesus? Do we take the Old Testament seriously or do we dismiss it? Do we take seriously the idea that the Old Testament stands fulfilled? Or do we try to impose the obligations of the Old Covenant on church-age believers today? Do we take the commandments of Jesus seriously or do we look for justifications for disobedience? Even his least important command is to be obeyed, we're told here. But do we, by our words and actions, teach other people that Jesus does not really mean what he says and that obeying him does not really matter? Friends, our attitude about these things and our related conduct is directly connected to our standing in the kingdom and the rewards that we will enjoy or forfeit forever. So where we find Jesus or the apostles giving commands in the New Testament, we had best pay attention. And frankly, as we move forward in this book, we're going to see a ton of practical instruction on how we should think and speak and pray and give and face hardship and deal with other people. And as we see these commands, we need to understand that we are to obey Jesus our Lord. We come now to the last principle we see in this passage about the law, which is that God's standard of righteousness far exceeds outward obedience to the law. Matthew 5, 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were two groups of religious teachers who were very popular in Jesus' day. In contrast to the priests who controlled the temple, they were infamously corrupt and worldly, but the Pharisees and the scribes seemed very holy because they were scrupulous about obeying even the most minute parts of the law. In Matthew chapter 23, we learn that the Pharisees tithed mint and dill and cumin. They tithed down to the level of the leaves of their garden herbs. Obedience to the level of minutiae. It made them look righteous. The Pharisees and scribes made up their own rules about conduct that went beyond what the law said, claiming that their man-made rules would protect people from even coming close to sin. And they vigorously enforced their made-up commands, as though those commands had the force of Scripture. This is going to bring them into sharp contention with Jesus in chapter 15. 
But this sort of hyper-observant legalism also made the Pharisees and scribes seem very righteous. Moreover, the Pharisees and scribes drew public attention to themselves when they did good deeds. In chapter 6, Jesus will speak about hypocrites who blew a trumpet in public when they gave to the needy, or those who would loudly pray on street corners to draw attention to themselves. These strategies were employed by the Pharisees and scribes to look righteous. And so to the common Jewish person in the first century, the Pharisees and scribes were the ultimate examples of righteousness. But Jesus is not impressed by them. Because we're going to see in chapter 23 that for all their deeds, the Pharisees and scribes had neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They made a show of scrupulous obedience in the smaller matters, but they missed the fact that God wanted something beyond outward obedience to the letter of the law. They missed the truth that Jesus is going to reveal in chapter 7, that at its core, the law is about loving God and loving people. And so here Jesus tells his hearers that God is not simply interested in scrupulous outward compliance with the letter of the law, what the Pharisees and scribes were about. Jesus says that level of righteousness falls far short of God's standard. That, sh- that sort of righteousness will never, and in Greek, this is a very intense negation, will in no way gain admission to the kingdom of heaven. Now here Jesus is speaking about the time in the future when God's kingdom will come in its fullness. When the world as we know it will end. When the world of rewards for God's people will begin. And Jesus says, don't think you can have the sort of righteousness that the Pharisees and scribes have and gain a part of the new world that is coming. Now, hearing this, the average first century Jew would despair. Because if a Pharisee or scribe wasn't going to make it, what chance did an ordinary person have? This is the exact response the disciples have later when Jesus says it's really hard for rich people to, to be saved. They can't believe it. But what does Jesus say? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How can humanity meet the demanding standard of God? A standard that Jesus is going to tell us at the end of chapter 5 is this. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can anyone meet that standard? Well, we can't meet it on our own. Only God can enable us to meet his standard. Only Christ, who not only obeyed the law but fulfilled it, could pass that standard. And it is his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that God requires. And friends, we can only get that righteousness by repentantly believing in Jesus. But thankfully, Jesus shares his perfect righteousness with those who trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin, which merits God's condemnation, and he bears the wrath of God on our behalf. And at the same time, Jesus gives believers his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before God. But understand that this is true not only in a theoretical way. Righteousness is not just a legal fiction that exists only in God's accounting books. Because when Jesus talks about righteousness in Matthew, he doesn't just mean the basis of our standing before God. He means righteous living. And those who cast themselves upon Christ, who are declared just by God, who receive Christ's imputed righteousness, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, We become the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the beginning of this chapter says. We become the people who are the pure in heart. We become the people who the Spirit empowers to not only live in outward compliance to God's word, but who are able to win battles for holiness in our inner lives. By ourselves, we never could do this. But by the power of the Spirit, by the work of God, over time, we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And God does in us what we can never do for ourselves. He makes us fit for his kingdom. And so we see that God's standard of righteousness far exceeds outward obedience to the law. But God imparts to his people 
what Hebrews 12 calls the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So in conclusion, we've seen today the Old Testament is not something we can unhitch from. It's a part of God's word that powerfully testifies to Jesus and that forms a foundation for much of the ethical instruction of the New Testament. But the Old Testament law is also not something that the church must obey because we are not ancient Israelites living in the promised land. We're not a part of that covenant. And because that covenant stands totally fulfilled in Jesus. But in the new covenant, we have a Lord who gives us commands. And we are to obey our Lord. And we are to recognize that God is not simply interested in our outward compliance with his written word. Instead, we must see that righteousness comes from him. And the righteousness he gives us goes beyond external compliance. It involves our transformation outwardly and inwardly. That causes us to love other people and to love Christ. Who Revelation 5 tells us, By his blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, the church, a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth.